Welcome to Make a Mixtapes. I'm Tom, and in this episode, we talk about swipe files, putting in your reps as an entrepreneur, and how to apply marketing ideas from other industries. Corey Haynes is the founder of Swipe Files, a newsletter and community that provides new marketing ideas from brands who have done it. He's also in the process of building Help a Creator and is the host of two podcasts, Default Alive and Everything is Marketing. With so much on his plate, I use this chat as an opportunity to ask Corey how he manages several projects in tandem and prioritizes what to work on, all while being a prolific content creator on platforms like Twitter. We also talk about how to take great marketing ideas from other industries that are not relevant to your business, how he applied this practice to Calendly's competitor, Savvy Cal, and what the future of online communities look like. Do enjoy. Cool. So I have so many questions to ask you about what you're up to right now, because I can see there's so much going on in your life, but uh, it'd be pretty negligent of me if I was to ignore your journey up to how you got to where you are today. Could you tell us a little bit about what got you into marketing as a quote unquote career and how it led you to becoming the full-time creator that you are today? Yeah, let me see if I can do like the abridged version. So, <laughs> so I don't spend the whole podcast talking about it. But basically, in high school, I thought I wanted to do like accounting or finance. By the time I was around, uh, I was actually, it was, I think, going into college. I ended up taking a road trip with a friend and uh, we were going to visit some other friends in college and we were talking about our plans and dreams. And, you know, he was telling about all of his sort of entrepreneurial endeavors and how he wanted to start companies and, he wasn't going to college, just kind of taking an untraditional path. And I was, you know, going down a very traditional path. And so he asked me what I was going to do. And I told him, well, I think I just want to, you know, get my degree, get a job in accounting or finance, have a family, you know, retire after 30 years or whatnot. And he's like, that's it. <laughs> at the time, I was super, super offended. But uh, after a while, you know, we started talking about it. We started talking about what's possible. That really got me into a few podcasts and sort of, you know, opened my eyes. I think it was sort of like the forbidden fruit a little bit. Like once you see it, you can't unsee it. And once you know what's possible, you kind of can't go back to maybe like a quote unquote normal life or a normal career. And so from there on, I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just didn't know what that meant. Yeah, uh, I didn't know exactly what that looked like. I still kind of had my eyes on finance and accounting. Like maybe I wanted to be a financial advisor, or maybe I wanted to climb the corporate ladder and become the CEO of a company one day, or something like that. And then it wasn't until I transferred colleges, and after I transferred, I realized that they didn't have an accounting and finance degree. <laughs> so it was either between global business, which I'm still not even sure what that is, or marketing. And um, so I chose marketing. And then once I got in there, I realized, oh, actually marketing is like the thing that I've really been into all this time because I've been, you know, I've been doing some like web design on the side and helping friends set up their Shopify sites and their Squarespace sites and, you know, just all the podcasts I was listening to were all around like, you know, growing and marketing and getting new customers. And it wasn't as much on like the product or like the operational side. And so I was like, oh, like this, this makes a lot of sense. Fast forward a little bit end of college, I was wanting to get the blessing of my girlfriend's parents to marry. I had to, to get a job. So I hit the books and I Google actually, and I Googled around and ended up finding a junior marketing position at a startup here in San Diego and went down, interviewed, got the job, you know, interned while I was still in there, graduated, hired on full time. And that was sort of my, when I broke into marketing and it's tech. 
Amazing, man. Yeah. So it sounds like you were doing a bit of marketing, but you didn't realize it in terms of doing web design and things like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and especially, you know, I I was commuting a lot. Like I was between work, between school. I sort of like lived out in the boonies here in San Diego. It's an alpine. And um, so just to, to school, it was about 30 minutes. And then to anywhere else, you know, between classes or whatnot, it was not close to anything else. And so I was driving literally like four to five hours a day for about for about four years. And so all of that was just filling my head with podcasts and audio books. And, you know, I would, I would just be reading my own stuff during class too. And I was sort of a, I was a good student on paper, but I was a terrible student as far as like actually, you know, paying attention and, and sort of being, I wasn't a teacher's pet at all. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, those years are definitely filled with just kind of like filling my head with the right information and preparing myself. Did you ever study accounting in the end or? No, I actually, I have a associate's degree in financial something i forget so i did a few accounting classes <laughs> and i'm i'm really glad that i didn't because now like a you know i go i'm going through the accounting process for for swipe files and i'm just like oh my gosh i can't imagine if i was doing this for a living for other people it's just oh, man. you know i think i chose the right career you dodged a bullet by the sounds of it and yeah you know I think so speaking of swipe files you know you've recently taken the leap i think it was september last year was it that you decided Correct. to go into a full time. And there's, there's one theme I really wanted to talk to you about because whenever I speak to people about taking the leap into pursuing any venture full time, there's always an element of resistance, right? As to why they shouldn't take the leap. And you've been quite transparent about your own journey. And I was wondering, is there like, is this something that you faced and how did you manage to prepare yourself for it both mentally and emotionally? Forgive me for going in with a deep question right off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the, the resistance is powerful and it's real. And it was definitely there. I remember, you know, again, I've always had my sights on being an entrepreneur, going out on my own. I just wanted to make sure that I was in the right place. But I'm definitely one of those like analysis paralysis overthinker types. I just want to have everything figured out to a T and have a plan and just follow through with the plan and go and execute. And it never really works out that way with entrepreneurship. (laughs) A lot of people told me like, it's kind of like having a kid, like there's just never the perfect time to have kids. And, you know, now is kind of always a good time. And so I knew basically that nothing was going to be perfect. I would have to get over all the things I wanted to have lined up. I was taking a lot of steps. So there's a few people who really influenced me. One was Tim Ferriss and sort of hearing all of his entrepreneurial, you know, four hour work week kind of stories and ideas. And just that really opened me up to like, okay, there's a lot out here besides just like even starting a startup. Like there's a lot of other types of businesses that make good money and sort of can be one step up. Uh, there's also Rob Walling. So he introduced me to this idea of stair-step entrepreneurship, as well as like Nathan Barry also has, has a very interesting kind of spin on it as well. But basically it's like this ladder, like these stairs. So going straight to something like SaaS, for example, B2B SaaS is at like the top end of the ladder where it's like, that's kind of like, the most rewarding, but it's also the most difficult, requires the most experience. And it's going to be like, it's like the most technically challenging to actually pull off. Whereas there are other steps up to that with varying levels of complexity and uh, and ease and, and level experience required that you can, that you can do, you can step to, in order to get to that final goal. And by this time I, you know, I already knew that I wanted to get into SAS eventually. And so I knew I needed to get in my reps and my sets. I wanted to take some of those steps. So I started with Hey Marketers, which was a no code job board. Um, then I created courses 
and I'd done a lot of like blogging and writing and sort of tried to build an audience for myself on Twitter. I even did some like productized services with consulting and with mentoring and coaching. And so I've been trying to basically put in the reps and to eventually get to SAS. But then I also was introduced to this idea of a launchpad business by Andrew Wilkinson. And it's basically the idea is like you have one business where it's just a cash cow and I feel like it kind of like demeans it a little bit. But basically the idea is you have something that doesn't require a ton of your time but they can pay your bills, essentially give you some sort of financial security and independence. So I knew that I thought that maybe Swipe Files, given that it's a membership site with a recurring revenue, but it's not a, a, so- a software platform, right? It's not like super technically challenging, then maybe that could be it. And so that's when I started Swipe Files and that seemed to be going fairly well. I came to the point basically where I figured, even though it was really, really scary, I figured that I could probably pick up some consulting I could probably, I had lots of ideas for SWI files that if I didn't, like I was just burning to get to them and I couldn't do them on the side anymore. And I wanted to start to, you know, put some irons in the fire with SAS. And I didn't want to do that while I was still at Barometrics and there might be a conflict of interest. And so sort of, you know, the timing worked out and uh, I made the leap and um, rest is history a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> still, still, still history's being played out, but uh, just made it happen. Exactly. Took took the leap, as it were. It's funny you say that you you were I, for lack of a better word, suffered from analysis paralysis. Because now, whenever I look at like your Twitter feed, like I had to quick like flick through some of the things that you were doing just today, just to get myself up to date, as it were. And <laughs> it feels like you are shipping something every single day. You know, is there anything you did in order to overcome that analysis paralysis, or was it just a matter of you know just understanding through the people that you talked about a second ago, understanding that it's never going to be perfect. Yeah. I think it's a combination of a whole bunch of ideas and influences from other people over time, you know, books like atomic habits, ultra learning, just hearing all these podcasts and interviews with people. I think one of the big things actually was there's two underlying things. One is I think a few years ago, I realized that basically everyone successful isn't that much different than you are today. Like they're just, they've managed to put themselves in that position. They've gone and done the work, but you know, there are only so many like Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk types of like prodigies out there. And like, I don't even want to be them. They have, I would not want their lifestyle. So that was encouraging me to fear like I could do this. Like, you know, who am I or who am I not to be able to go out and, and, uh, and make something of myself and, and go out and, and just get after it. The other one was also realizing that yeah, it's not going to be perfect. I need to get my reps and sets in. I need to get practice in. It's never going to be perfect. And that I actually, I need to just really be prolific. That's been like the main thing for me is I just need to get things out every day. I need to ship. I think it's also been an interesting kind of influence of being in SaaS. And it's a very like maker culture. It's a very product driven culture. And those types of people, engineers, designers, you know, product people are very much driven to like, oh, just ship it, like just get it out there, just work on something small every single day. And so I've taken that for myself, an entrepreneur in marketing, just trying to ship stuff every day and knowing that it's not going to be perfect and the plan probably isn't going to go according to plan, but, you know, I'll tweak and iterate along the way. Exactly. The best that you can do, right? Yeah. I saw recently that you hit a pretty big milestone, the 1K MRR milestone. Congratulations, by the way. Was that with Swipe Files? Yeah, yes, yeah, Swipe Files. Actually, it's a 2K MRR. So it's actually around oh. $2,400 now. It grows a little bit each month. 
Amazing. That's so good to hear, man. What kind of growth marketing or even content marketing activity have you prioritized in order to get to, well, first of all, that first 1000, but also to, you know, I guess doubling it since I last checked. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The first thousand. So to give you a brief kind of background on swipe files, because it's, it's kind of changed and the, the mouse sounds of different because when I first launched it, the idea was basically just like a curated library of marketing examples with some sort of like teardown or analysis on each one of those examples. So I launched it, I built it all in Webflow, all the no code tools kind of just stitched together. And then I launched it last April, like the end of April, 2020. And um, basically for like 30 something weeks, I just shipped a new teardown every week. And what I did was I made the latest teardown free, but then any other teardown before that would be sort of locked away members only. And that managed to get, uh, you know, my first hundred ish members and the first thousand in MRR technically. But then once I went full time on myself, then I introduced the community. I also created an actual kind of curated swipe file for swipe files. I launched the, the podcast. Now I'm working on a newsletter and more content. And so since then, now like the second run, like that second thousand dollars in MRR has come from more of the community, I would say. And that's been a little bit more of like inside out growth. A lot of me like heavily recruiting people. Like when I first launched the community, it was literally me. I had like a hundred DMs and email threads of me sort of, I started interest like asking, Hey, would you be interested in this? And you know, why is it interesting? What would you like to see, et cetera, et cetera. Trying to do some customer development and then actually inviting those people in and getting them to, to become members in the first place. But the marketing strategies, I mean, really it's kind of funny because everyone that I talk to, everyone always feels insecure and almost like ashamed or guilty about how little marketing they do. But I actually kind of feel the opposite. I feel like the less you can get away with, the better, because it means you can do those things really, really well. And if you can get the same results with with less work and with less complexity, then that's ultimately better. Like they'll keep you more sane <laughs> and you can, uh, you can really own those. You can build moats out of those. So for me, the main things are my Twitter, podcasting, and content. So it's like the newsletter, doing workshops and webinars, events, and those like the main three things I really, I don't, I don't mess with any other social platform. I don't run any ads. It's very, very simple. And honestly, the large part of that driven by Twitter as kind of like the flywheel and the input to a lot of those other things like the content as well as the podcasting. Yeah. It's not, it's not as if you do less, but you're like doing more on just a very specific set of right. channels for lack of a better word, right? More focused. Awesome, man. Awesome. How's the community aspect going? Like, how did you get people, like, I guess the first members to get engaged? How did you move them, for lack of a better word, from Mm -hmm. a subscriber to a product to an active engaged member? Because I see that you've, you know, you've got some key members who are more engaged than others. How do you kind of, you know, encourage that level of engagement? Yeah. I mean, when I first launched the community and was even thinking about launching the community, I was deathly afraid to be honest, because community was like not in my, you know, circle of competence, not in my wheelhouse, not something I'd really done before in any capacity. And so I I knew that it was also very delicate because with a community, it's kind of like a two-sided marketplace in a way where you're, you're matching people. Right. And so you have like supply demand. If it's just me and one other person, 
doesn't really work. Like you even, you need some sort of critical mass for the, the community to really take on a life of its own and for things to start working, for it to, for people to post, to comment, to engage with each other. It's this kind of interconnected web and this flywheel you have to kickstart. And so definitely that analysis paralysis kind of theme was going on when I was going through that process, but I decided to just kind of think it through, ask a few smart people and then just ship it. And so what I started with was I first asked on Twitter, uh, Hey, are you a part of any marketing communities? If you are, which ones and why, if not, why not? And that spurred on a whole bunch of DMS conversations, comments about what people like, what they don't like. And I really actually, I pressed people because if they say that they were in it, I would ask them, you know, how often are you in there? Like, what, what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? Is there something you would change about it? Um, if they weren't in a community, I would ask, why not? You know, what communities have they tried and, and did they, you know, kind of fall out of? What are they afraid of when they join new communities? I was really trying to flesh out all the different scenarios and really also flesh out what could I uniquely bring to the table? And so I kind of centered on a few key themes. Uh, one of them was like this asynchronous culture that people were craving with Facebook groups and with Slack, it's very real time. It's very sort of synchronous. And it's, it's like, you know, the conversation's happening. If you're, if you're there, you're in it. Uh, if you're not, then like you missed it. Right. And then you like wake up to a thousand notifications you have to read through and people have this anxiety around to open up their Slack. Even I have it for a lot of communities that I'm a part of. And so I wanted to make sure that I could deliver on something that didn't make people feel like they had to be there checking in all the time that also was a little bit more forum style without like without completely removing kind of that real time aspect. And uh, so super fortunate that a community called uh, or a platform called Circle launched this year and happened to get plugged in with those guys pretty early on and get an early peak. And so I knew that that would be a good platform for it. One of the other ones was uh, the fact that it's paid. And so a lot of people are saying that they were a part of free communities, but they were not active in them. Uh, a lot of other people, a lot of the big complaints were that, you know, the communities were spammy or that they were, you know, poorly moderated or they were inactive now or that there was just too many people, just too noisy. So I was like, oh, interesting. Maybe I'll actually bundle this into the Swipe Files membership as a paid offering because so it was going to be something completely separate. But then I actually realized that there'd be a, a good opportunity for it to live under Swipe Files. So, so then I did the same thing with Twitter that I did with my email list with the newsletter. So I had a few thousand people subscribe to that. Just asked like an open question through the email. Hey, thinking about this, uh, what's your experience been like? You know, feel free to reply and we can chat. Had a hundred different <laughs> threats through that. Asked the same questions. And then I finally decided, okay, here are like the core pillars, the core value props. It's going to be asynchronous. It's going to be a lot of different types of people. It's going to be paid and kind of closed. So it's not going to be spammy. Here's kind of the culture that what we're going for and the things that you can expect. I'm thinking about making this thing, presented that back to every single one of the DM conversations, every single one of the email conversations and said, would you like to join? And if they said yes, I would give them a link to become a member. And if they said no, I said, that's no problem. And that's how I recruited the first hundred members, essentially, of the community. Kickstarting it was basically... You know, I would post a few things. I had a few close friends post a few things in there. But then as soon as someone joined the community, then it was, you know, just like this welcoming community of, hey, welcome. So glad to be here. You know, tell me about yourself. Oh, that's so cool. To tell me more about that. Then I'm posting things in there every day. And after like, I would say after like two weeks, it started to become apparent that like people were, were returning, they were engaging. And this whole kind of magic thing was working. Amazing, man. Yeah, I've, I'm a, a member of one community that runs on Circle, and I think the timing couldn't be better because, like you said, 
a lot of people are starting to feel a bit of pressure from the communities they're on on Slack or Facebook groups. And well, first of all, it allows these communities kind of to kind of be decentralized from those that 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 ownership from the the big dogs, for lack of a better word. But it reminds me, I used to make indie games back in my early teens. And I would engage in these forums that were built up of, I think, platforms like BB Forum and stuff like that. And it's very reminiscent of that, only cooler. So I think uh, that style of community is going to become even bigger in the coming years. At least I think so. What's been like the early feedback from the community itself and the way it's set up? Like, are some of the members new to the circle experience and what do they think of it? Yeah, a lot of people are new to the circle experience. I've had quite a few people, you know, give some sort of like feedback or I guess like hesitation about, well, you know, like if it's not in Slack or if it's not in Facebook, like places I already am all the time, how am I going to make it a priority to like to be in here and to actually, you know, respond, like make use of this community. And so I always tell people like, look, it's just like any other website, like you, you bookmark it. Um, also there's email notifications, there's push notifications, there's a mobile app as well that you can use this. That's really not like a, a concern of mine really anymore. I think the big part of it, and I've been really thankful to have uh, some very like active and sort of like evangelist type community members. And so they're the one, like I have this core group of people now who are really driving the community forward, who are really kind of like the anchor points to a lot of making the community happen and welcoming people and making sure that it's being engaged. And so, yeah, I mean, the feedback has been great. It's very, um, I also, it's interesting because I, with the asynchronous culture, I'm also trying to make sure that it doesn't become too busy and too noisy. Like sometimes, you know, there isn't like a new post uh, or any activity in a day and like, that's okay because if that's not what people want, then like I'm not going to make it happen just to like keep the numbers going up and to the right or like, you know, just to like save, you know, just to make it look like there's like an active community. If people really want to engage, they'll engage at the level that they want to as long as there's the right opportunities there. So it's an interesting balance between, you know, providing enough sort of interaction for people to feel close, they feel like it's valuable, they're learning, they're growing but not too much to where they're overwhelmed or they feel like, you know, they can't really contribute in a meaningful way. Amazing, man. That's so good to hear. And speaking of swipe files, I think I mentioned when we emailed, I've been a huge fan of keeping them since reading Dan Kennedy books back in the day, but I talk, awesome. I know, right. I mean, I talked to some marketers though, and the concept is a little bit alien to them. And I know why I get value from them, but if you were to kind of convince a new marketer to keep or even subscribe to a swipe file uh, like yours, how would you sell it to them now? Yeah, so a swipe file is this funny term. It's kind of like this jargony like word and, and phrase that we just made up. But uh, it's actually there's a lot of different parallels to other industries. Like if you talk to designers, they have mood boards. If you talk to authors or people who are really into like personal knowledge management, they'll talk about this thing called a, a Zettelkasten and you know note taking. And it's basically that for marketing. Uh, even like if you go all the way back to sort of the the old like the the old times Renaissance age, artists face a blank page, writers face a blank page, even marketers face an empty <laughs> landing page, if you will, right? Yeah. And all of us, we solve it in the exact same way. We actually look for inspiration in other places, right? We need some sort of thing that kickstarts some creativity or that we, you know, we like this little component we take, we kind of steal pieces from other people's work. Steve Jobs liked to quote, good artists borrow, great artists steal, which was actually kind of a, a misquote and kind of a paraphrase of Pablo Picasso, who said that lesser artists borrow and great artists steal. 
And it, it doesn't actually mean to steal, right? But basically you can take elements from other people's work and remix them and incorporate them into your own with your own unique flair. So it's like sampling, like, you know, again, going back to the music industry, right? A lot of people sample beats or uh, instruments or lyrics or melodies. So a swipe file is basically just, hey, let me find all the great marketing examples I can find, landing pages, emails, ads, taglines, branding, and let me have something to reference for later when I need the inspiration, when I need something to reference. And it really helps you to not have to start from scratch, now I have to reinvent the wheel. Like, I mean, how I, I started Swipefell is actually one, one of the big kind of starting points was I was spinning up an affiliate program for my last company, Bear Metrics. And um, I was like, what the heck goes on a landing page for an affiliate program recruiting affiliate partners? <laughs> like, it's so niche and obscure. And um, it's like, I don't, I don't know what I'm just, I'd just be guessing. I'm just going to be throwing spaghetti at the wall. So I went and looked at other people's affiliate marketing landing pages, went and talked to other affiliate managers, went and looked at other industries, see how they did things, what the best practices were. And then once I had the information, then I could go and make a good affiliate marketing landing page. But if you don't have that place to start those things, those resources, then you're making it up as you go. And I, I personally, I'm not very comfortable with that strategy. Other people might be, but I'm not. So it's almost as if swipefiles.com is a library of samples for marketers, right? In a way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So it's evolved, right? There were the teardowns. I still need to get back to the teardowns, but there's still like a big library of, I think 50 plus. I have this actual curated swipe file. So there's 1500 examples in there, but there's no commentary. And then there's a community where we all learn and we sort of share things that we're swiping. And also, you know, there's a lot more to it as well. But yeah, there's, there's all sorts of different angles that you can attack this at. Amazing. In your experience as a SaaS marketer, did you ever go to a completely unrelated industry, totally left field, like not even e-commerce, something totally unexpected and take an idea from there and apply it? And perhaps not even SaaS, perhaps even something that you're doing today. Like what is the most mm. random industry you've ever swiped from? <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. So one of my consulting clients right now that I'm working with is Savvy Cal with Derek Reimer the founder there. And it's just, just me and him. And early on, when I started working with him back in uh, November of 2020, uh, you know, the product was had just launched, barely any revenue. And we're just trying to figure out, like, what are some, like, guerrilla marketing tactics and things we can do to kickstart revenue and, like, get it out there in front of people. And um, one of the big comparisons was Calendly. So Calendly is kind of like the big incumbent in the space. Savvy Cal is a, another scheduling tool, but it has some more personalization and a better UX on top of it. And so the big question on people's minds was, okay, well, how is this different from Calendly? And we also had a lot of people who then, who would get it, but uh, and who would understand the value proper of SavvyCal, but then they would always tell us, well, you know, I, I'm on an annual contract with Calendly. And so, you know, remind me in, in May or in June, or like it just renewed. And so like, sorry, but like, you know, you have to catch me later. So I thought, well, what, what can we do to really get these people on board who, one, understand the differences and really want to get on board, but maybe are locked into a contract. And then we thought of how like a lot of the telephone services and, and carriers will buy out your contract with the other competitor, you know, like Verizon or T-Mobile or AT&T. They'll even like either they'll buy out your contract or they even like give you a free phone and, you know, they'll sort of like financially incentivize you to switch over and make that friction frictionless. 
And so we thought, why don't we buy out people's annual subscription to that, Calendly to our competitor? That is so funny because I saw that tweet from Derek about this program and I retweeted it saying, in the UK, this is what mobile carriers do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Small yeah. world. Right. So, uh, and that's exactly what people do here in the US as well. Like it's gotten really, really, really competitive. And so that went really well, but that was probably like the most obscure, like, you know, taking basically telephone services to SaaS and software. Amazing. Oh, I've got a good example. I love that so much. Yeah. I noticed that you're a, a huge proponent of customer research, just kind of flipping the totally off topic here, but it's a topic I was quite interested in digging into because it's something that I'm a big advocate of as well. And I was wondering how you approach customer development and customer research in general, both at a company like Bear Metrics, where you were kind of running growth full time, but also how does that differ to some of the stuff that you've been building in public with help a creator, for example? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, customer research, I feel like, again, it's maybe one of those things where in SaaS, it's very well known and well defined, well accepted within like the product people and kind of engineering culture in, in type of uh, circles. But for marketing and for business, not so much for some reason. It's definitely, it's, it's, it's growing and it's, it's becoming more well-known and more well-accepted, but it still feels like there isn't that much sort of acceptance of it, or it's not like a, a best practice quite yet. When I was at Metrics, I was talking to at least like 10 to 20, you know, SaaS founders and operators a week. And normally it would be, you know, like a trialing user or a customer. And I was always talking about how to grow their business. You know, people are wondering, well, you know, well, what's this guy doing? Or, you know, what do you see working for other companies? What's normal? What's good? What's bad? What are like the bleeding edge kind of cutting edge strategies that you're seeing working today? And pretty soon after that, after having the, a lot of those conversations out the first few months that I was there, I started to see some really clear patterns that every time someone was doing really, really well and they were on top of things, they were mature, they had great metrics, they really were like ahead of the game. They could anticipate their customers' needs. They were the ones like creating the cutting edge strategies. They always did and had a culture of customer research. They always had this sort of feedback loop where they were always continuing learning from their audience, from their customers, from their users, from their partners. On the flip side, the people who were always like floundering around or like had bad metrics, were not growing, who were just sort of like desperate, scraping, clawing for every extra dollar, were just throwing spaghetti at the wall. They, they had never talked to their customers. They didn't think it was a good idea. They had no idea what they even meant, what customer research could mean in a business setting. And um, so that really one like kind of struck the importance to me of like, wow, this is actually a really key critical business practice. But then I, I really started digging into why, why is that? When I first started Bear the very first thing that I did, because I knew that this was something important was I talked to 20 of our best customers. I reached out to all of our expired trials and I reached out to all of our canceled customers and I asked for a set of feedback. You know, it wasn't just like, Hey, can you give me feedback? But there were specific questions tailored for each one of those audiences. And that ultimately is what determined the marketing strategy, sort of the growth strategy for Metrics. And you can read, if you just Google Metrics Growth Manifesto, that was kind of like the conclusion that I came to and the foundation for how we began to start thinking about marketing at Metrics. So anyways, it's really, really critical. Like there were very two, two very clear things. It was either you do customer research, you don't do customer research. The differences are very, very different. And really what I encourage people to do now and it's a core part of my process for every company that I work with, or just my overall advice for people is to get on the phone with your best customers, get to know everything you possibly can, 
also do the same thing with people who maybe, you know, came through the door but weren't activated or even canceled, get their feedback, run surveys, try to get some like aggregated, you know, quantitative data, and then do a lot of like detective work online as well. You know, look at reviews of competitors, look at reviews of books in your industry, or maybe books related to the topic that your software is built around or your product is built around. See what the sentiment is like on Twitter. Like Twitter has an amazing advanced search engine. If you just go to there, you have to like find it, but I think it's just, uh, they call it their advanced search and, um, you know, do some keyword research, use tools like SparkToro to figure out where do people actually hang out online? Um, who are the influencers? Who are the people we should be connected with? What are the, the blogs people read, the, the newsletters people subscribe to, the podcasts people listen to, the YouTube channels people watch? And then you can start to build out this really well-defined marketing strategy that, one, you're, you're hitting all the right channels. You're showing where people are. You're showing up where people are. But two, you're using the right language as well. Uh, again, same thing with SavvyCal. When, when I first starting with them, uh, the landing page, people didn't really understand what it was, and especially not how it was different from Calendly. So one, we built out a Calendly competitor page, but also we revamped the, the main landing page to really go through the main differentiators and the value props that, people, that were drawing people to SavvyCal once they got in, right? Once it really clicked for them, using their words exactly. So we started using these words like uh, a lot of people kept saying, hey, you know, with tools like Calendly and you can book me in Acuity, I'm starting to feel weird about sending out my scheduling link. And so, you know, then when they switch to SavvyCal, they would say, I feel great sending it now. So the main headline now, if you go and if you read it, it says sending out your scheduling link shouldn't feel weird. And that really, really, really struck a chord with people. And I didn't write it. Some guy, Brett, this guy, Brett Goldstein, I believe on Twitter wrote that and it got a whole bunch of responses. I knew that that would resonate with people because I had sat down and actually done the work to do the customer research. Amazing, man. It's like your customers are writing the copy for you. I'm wondering when you reach out to people, do you go for like potential customers as well? Or do you only focus on those who have kind of had some kind of touch point, whether that's Savvy Cal or their metrics? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like the main three buckets are people who are currently customers, people who were in their product or users at one point, and the people who could be in the future. I think that each one of those you have to you have to approach very differently. And I would say that that bucket you just mentioned of potential customers is the most like delicate and also kind of harder, hardest to reach segment uh, of the audience. But in that, in that case, especially, uh, that's when you can really start to test how things are working. Because with a current customer, with a, with a past user, they're already biased because they know what the product does, who you are, they've had some sort of experience with you. So they might give you like a thumbs up or like a, yeah, that makes sense. Or, but if you're, you know, doing cold email outreach, or if you're just testing different value props with a warm intro, then you can really start to test and see how does this, this new messaging work out, for example, or you can start to, to sample, you know, uh, people's responses a little bit more unbiased. Yeah. Do you ever incentivize quote unquote cold contacts in order to just get on the phone with you and ask them questions? Because it can be a little bit tricky to get responses from someone who's never heard of you before. Yeah, not really. And I think that's the problem is that I don't think you can really do a good job of getting people on the phone who have never heard of you ever before. I think the key is actually making those sort of uh, a warm introduction where you've interacted with them on social media at some point, you've responded to their newsletter, you've given them feedback on their product, you've commented or liked even something, and you've made your face known. 
And then once you have that little tiny bit of kind of social capital, then you can, you know, convert that into some sort of interaction where it's a Twitter DM or it's an email and you say, Hey, I've been following you for X, Y, and Z and, or love your work on this or that. We'd love to get your advice about X, right? Maybe it's, you know, if you're building a, I don't know, a marketing automation platform. And so we'd love to get your, your feedback or your, your advice uh, or your help on some thoughts on, you know, what you do with leads once they come through the door or how you choose, you know, which leads to pass over to sales or, or you can even say, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to tackle this problem. You don't have to get a lot more context than that. We'd love to get your feedback on this and your help. Uh, if you can, you know, respond over email, that'd be great over a call, even better. Let me know what works for you. But, uh, I don't really, it's hard to really do that cold. It's also, I think also hard to do that in like with a financial incentive where you're trying to, you know, Oh, you entered into a giveaway when you do the survey or, <laughs> you know, give you a $15 Starbucks gift card. Like it just changes the dynamic of the conversation to an interview where people feel like they have to give the right answers rather than just an informal chat, a conversation where people actually tell you the truth. Yeah, I suppose it's it's tricky, in, especially as if you're reaching senior decision makers, they don't really care about a $15 Starbucks gift card. Right? That too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair play. Awesome, man. I have a couple of questions before I let you go, namely around your approach to content creation, because you have two podcasts on the go and all of these other projects. How the hell do you get so much done? How do you prioritize everything that you you are doing at the moment? Uh, I mean, to be honest, it's kind of a juggling act. So I don't know if I have like this <laughs> super crazy streamlined process. Uh, it's a little bit all over the place, especially podcast recording with guests. You know, one of my podcasts, Default Alive, I do with my friend Chris. We just have a regular recording time. So that's fairly easy to just, you know, block out an hour. And that every hour is committed to, to doing that in the week. Uh, with everything is marketing, it's more interview based. And so I try to do a lot of my recordings on Mondays. But sometimes it bleeds over to Tuesdays. Sometimes it bleeds over to Wednesdays. And like last week, I had one on a Friday. And so like, you know, it's not ideal. I try to batch my time together. Normally, Wednesdays are like my my meeting stays with all my consulting or just other kind of recordings. Monday, Tuesday is more like my deep work days for like writing, creating. Thursday, Friday, consulting. You know, tying up loose ends, kind of stuff. But yes, yeah, so it's it's a juggling act to be honest. Even like with a lot of the content creation side of things on Twitter with my, uh, with my newsletter and. Uh, with other sort of workshops and things that I'm that I'm creating, I always try to do more assembling than I do actually like starting from scratch. And so I keep a sort of a, a second brain, if you will, in Rome Research and in a tool called MyMind. MyMind is basically like this Chrome extension that just like saves anything and everything, and you can like find it later. Rome is where I do a lot of like the ideation and like flesh out the ideas and you know, I'll write down random thoughts or I'll, you know, drop in tweets from other people to kind of like supplement the thought of what it is. And then once I actually sit down to create it and write it, I have something again to work with. I have thoughts and ideas already written down, resources to draw from, um, things that I've saved from the past. And that drastically speeds up the process from being a, you know, it's going to take me a week to, or a month to, it's going to take me a couple of days or even a couple of hours. Good old fashioned batching and spinning plates by the sounds of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, really hard, but time batching, time blocking is an amazing approach to just, you know, create time for yourself to do those things. And then there's all sorts of other, you know, hacks and things you can do to make the most of that time. But really time blocking, uh, reducing switching costs is definitely a huge factor there as well. Doesn't get much simpler than that. Amen. Awesome. 
Corey, this has been a really fun chat. Before I let you go, what are you working on the moment that you're super jazzed about? And yeah, where can people learn more about you? Yeah, really good questions. I mean, what I'm working on at the moment that I'm really excited about is just the Swipe Files community. And so uh, I'm really excited just to have people in there. There's a lot of, it's a mix between like marketers in-house and freelance marketers and agency owners, as well as like founders and entrepreneurs from all sorts of walks of life. And that's kind of like the appeal of the community personally is like, it's not this echo chamber of B2B SaaS marketers. It's everyone. And that way we can all bring something unique to the table and and contribute and we can actually uncover and find those kind of unique creative ideas for marketing. Uh, we even do something kind of fun called Think Tank Thursday where we feature someone's business and we kind of crowdsource marketing ideas for them. So personally, that's what I'm really excited about. You can find me on Twitter, mainly at Corey Hinsko. That's where I, I don't fuss around with any other, other social platforms, but I try to do a good job of curating some good content there. Swipefells.com, of course. Uh, and as well as for, for podcast list, listeners as well, I only give out discounts and coupons to sort of these appearances that I do. Uh, but if you use the code maker mixtapes, maker mixtapes at the checkout, um, you can get half off a membership. It's only 49 bucks a year for the first year. So trying to make it a no brainer, but you can find that at swifehousecom slash membership. That's really generous of you, Corey. Appreciate that. I'll be uh, taking advantage of that. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I'd love to have you. Terrific. Corey, thank you so much. This has been a really good chat. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you, Arabmi. Thanks for listening. Before you dash, just a quick note to share a free ebook we just published called the Content Operations Playbook. If you're interested in content marketing and SEO, then this ebook is for you. We lift the hood up on our own editorial and content production processes from hiring writers, creating solid content briefs, polishing content to be the best it can be, and of course, distributing it to actually generate traffic. It's totally free and you can download it over at grizzle.io forward slash content ops. That's www.grizzle.io forward slash content ops. And hey, if you enjoy this podcast, feel free to subscribe. We've got a lot of great conversations lined up with experts in the world of business, marketing, and entrepreneurship coming up. Thanks again.